Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. Dr. Jude Curavan is a cosmologist, planetary healer, author, and previously one of the most senior businesswomen in the UK as the group finance director of two major international businesses. She holds a PhD in archaeology from the University of Reading in the UK, researching ancient cosmologies. She also holds a master's degree in physics from Oxford University, where she specialized in cosmology and quantum physics. She is the author of five nonfiction books currently available in 15 languages and 25 countries. And Dr. Jude is known for her profound insights on the interplay between modern science ancient wisdom, and human consciousness. In this interview, we discuss her most recent book that is currently in manuscript form called The Cosmic Hologram, How to Make a Perfect Universe. From this conversation, we cover everything from how to understand the recent terrorist attacks and what it means from a collective consciousness perspective to how understanding that our reality is really a hologram and what that means for your day-to-day life. And finally, how to access greater wisdom and your higher path. Dr. Jude holds such a unique perspective on the world and the cosmos, so I'm really excited for you all to have an opportunity to experience her wisdom. Without further ado, let's jump in. Welcome, Dr. Jude. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, Susanna, it's great to be with you. Well, we're really excited. And as I was just saying in our pre-interview, you have such uh, an incredible experience in your biography that I would love for you to uh, begin by sharing with our audience a bit more about your history uh, and, and the journey that brought you to where you are today. Well, um, thank you for that. Uh, it's been a scenic route. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that, the scenic route. That's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, there's been many threads. It's interesting, isn't it, when we, when we walk our life's journey. Um, somebody said, you, you live it forward, you understand it backwards. And I guess that's the way oh. I'm feeling in mine. Um, I grew up in the north of England. My dad was a coal miner. Um, he died when I was 10. Um, and my mum brought up myself and my little brother. Um, from the age of four, I've experienced multidimensional realities, um, beginning with a discarnate light coming into my room when I was four. And that light um, has mentored me ever since, has had many other multidimensional discarnate wisdom teachers. Um, I started studying science um, as well as metaphysics at the age of four. I gave my first lecture on quantum physics when I was nine years old. What? (laughs) What? Wait, hold on now. How is well, that it possible? Was, <laughs> it wasn't quite as, as as posh as it sounds. My mum invited the neighbours round, and she gave them a cup of tea and a piece of cake. I think they came for that, but <laughs> it was my first. It was my first lecture. Um, but I gave other lectures when I was in my teens in Germany and, and elsewhere in Europe. Um, and I uh, did a master's degree in physics at Oxford University um, and then went into international business. You can see the scenic route opening already. Um, But what that did was amazing because I traveled the world. I was in international finance, but what it did was it held ground me actually and it helped me to understand what communication is. 
And I've, you know, what for me, what communication is, it's not what you say, it's what's understood. So, you know, it, when that understanding happens, then there's that connection, then there's that communication. So that those years of, of international business really gave me those tools in my, my scenic journey. But I always kept up with the leading edge of science. And of course, I was experiencing all these other realms of, of existence. So for me, the physical realm was just one off. And I never really um, bought into the perceived duality. So I was very, very fortunate. Um, and then around the time of about 20 years ago, I realized that my time of being in business was going. Um, I was ready to move on. And since then, I did a doctorate, PhD in archaeology, studying ancient cosmology. So really, I suppose my whole life journey with all its its cul-de-sacs and twirls and roads and highways has been to understand not only how the universe and reality is as it is, but why it is as it is. And that's an ongoing journey. Um, after my PhD in archaeology, studying how the ancients perceived themselves in relationship to the universe and the science of our current language of how we perceive ourselves in relation to reality. Um, I also have traveled the world, been to about 70 countries, trying to be in, you know, aiming to be in service to planetary healing, to the healing of our collective consciousness, to a shift in consciousness, to a greater remembering of who we really are. Um, and a realization that we ultimately, and everything we call reality, is ultimately all one, which the ancients and the indigenous elders have always told us. But thank goodness now, science, literally emerging 21st century science, is coming to the same conclusion. And that's really the subject of my, my new book um, and the other books that I've written. But this one is really laying out the evidence um, for this emerging transformational paradigm. And it's a book. I'd have loved to have write, written it 59 years ago. I was only four. Probably not. I've been writing it for 59 years. But I literally could have only written it now. A lot of the evidence, um, the discoveries um, uh, that I write about in it have only been found and revealed in the last couple of years. So it's it's of its time. It's literally, you know, we say an idea whose time has come. I, I describe it more as a time whose idea has come. And I hope it's an idea that can help us in our remembering of who we really are. So so tell us more. I believe that the, the book now has not come out yet. I think you mentioned in our pre-interview, you just finished the manuscript. So tell us the title and 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 more of what we will learn in it and what we can discover. Okay, well, the title of the manuscript as it stands mm -hmm. is, the, is The Cosmic Hologram, How to Make a Perfect Universe. And what it lays out is how our universe is made in its perfect way. And by perfect, I mean that it's been able to support the evolution of self-aware beings um, that can enjoy chocolate cake and red wine. Mm -hmm. uh, which I feel is very important on mm -hmm. both scales. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's extraordinary because if you think of, 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 of making, literally making a chocolate cake, you need instructions, you need ingredients, you need a recipe, you need conditions, you need a container, and voila, you get the perfect outcome. So I lay out all of the um, latest scientific discoveries 
of, of all of those things in relation to our universe and the nature of reality. But the fundamental um, attribute that I write about is as needing to move on from a 20th century perspective of energy and matter and space and time to realizing that information is more fundamental than any of them. And essentially, that energy matter is information expressed in that way. And space and time are also information expressed in that way. And of course, when you start to restate the entirety of the physical nature of our universe in informational terms, that's a slippery slope to consciousness. I don't know where you get off that slippery slope. And ultimately, the book arrives at that point that says, look, we've looked at all the evidence. We can see how more and more discoveries are showing that information is the bedrock, is the non-physical um, underpinnings from which our sense of, of reality emerges. But what is information? And ultimately, it's not just data it's intelligence. It's what Einstein called cosmic mind. But when he, you know, came forward with the theory of relativity nearly a hundred years ago, it was next Thursday, the 26th, that he spoke to the Prussian Academy of Sciences and shared with them this revolutionary new perspective of space and time. It's a century now. But he wasn't able to take it forward. But he knew intuitively that there was more to understand, a deeper fundament to understand. And it's 100 years almost to the day that we're having this conversation, that we can explore that fundament and realize that his notion of cosmic mind is what informs our universe as a coherent, unified entity that is perfect in every way for the evolution of increasing levels of complexity and consciousness and self-awareness. So that's what the book's about. So is this, <laughs> so is this, I, I'm going to attempt to, to break into this from my understanding. <laughs> so when you say information, what comes to mind is um, hearing about the Akashic records or mm. um, the field, as Lynn McTaggart talks about. Um, is that what you mean? And if so, could you tell our audience a bit more about that if they don't know either of those? Yeah, thank you for that. And 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 both, and both. It's just different terminology for the same idea. I think there's two things to bring forward now. Um, the first is that, you know, we we tend in our everyday lives to think of physical reality as well, very physical. Um, you know, I, I broke my arm a year ago. I, I, I sleepwalk. I walked out of our bedroom door and instead of going left to the loo, I went right down oh. a flight of stairs and, and went slamming oh. into a wall. Physical felt very physical at that point, but it really isn't. It's 99 point, you know, 99999 as far as you want to go, no thingness. And the only reason we feel the physicality is, is due to something called the Pauli exclusion principle, which is about the way in which um, when particles get mass, they can't occupy the same quantum state, okay? Which means that there are forces holding them apart. That doesn't mean that it's 
material. It just means the forces are in balance such that we perceive what we call physicality. But it's incredibly ephemeral. And from the get-go of the quantum revolution 100 years ago, that was understood, but it was sort of pushed to the side because it was almost too much of a bridge to follow in terms of experiential understanding. But it is it is the way it is. Now, the other thing that only started to come from the other side of that bridge, really in the late 1960s and onwards, was this beginning to understand what information is. And it's become more and more understood that information itself actually is expressed as energy. So it is physical in that sense. So our notions of what physicality are becoming more and more ephemeral and our notions of information are becoming more and more physicalized. So what that does is it also means that we're starting to realize and understand that we need to restate the laws of physics, not in terms of energy and matter or space and time, but in terms of the information that is expressed in those ways. And we can go back, we can go back to the 18, 19th century um, and, a, and a, a theorist called Ludwig Boltzmann. And Ludwig was trying to understand how gases behave. And he came up with two fundamental laws of physics, that what's called the first law and the second law of thermodynamics. Now, the first law talks about energy and matter, and it says in a closed system, and our universe is closed, energy and matter conserved. In other words, what you get at the beginning is what you get at the end. They just change form. So what we have is um, information expressed as energy going through all these changes as we go through this universal evolution, but overall conserved. The energy that makes up us is 13.8 billion years old. And from your photo, you sure don't look it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you are very beautiful. But you are but all the energy that makes you up and me up and everything up essentially is 13.8 billion years old. And it, it will stay that way until the completion of a universal cycle. But it is information expressed as energy matter. Okay. Now the second law is even more fundamental than the first. And the second law talks about a concept called entropy. And entropy used to be thought of as order-disorder, but now it's understood as the informational content of a system. And entropy, the law of entropy says, it only goes one way. It only moves one way. In other words, order to disorder or low, en or low information to more information. Now, at the beginning of our universe, the first moment of space and time at the Big Bang, entropy was at a minimum. In other words, if you take it now into information, information was at a minimum. But then what happened is that information, entropy moved forward. It started to increase. Now, when you've spoken to other people, I'm sure they've discussed with you the holographic principle. We have touched on it, but I'd love for you to talk more about it. Okay. Now, the holographic principle is key to this. I'm going to move ahead and then we can backtrack if we want to. But the emerging idea is that our entire universe is actually projected. All the reality of our we see as physicalized, we experience as physicalized, is essentially a holographic projection from its boundary. Okay. 
Now, at the beginning of space-time, that boundary was as tiny as it could be, minimum information. But each area of that boundary, each tiny, tiny, tiny area of that boundary called a Planck area, holds one bit of information. So from that beginning of space-time, that holographic boundary, what we call space itself, had to expand to enable more and more information to be expressed within space-time. Now, that holographic boundary, ever-expanding through this cycle of our universe, space-expanding, is the Akashic Record. Essentially, it's Lynn's field. It's deep, you know, it, it's all this sense of all of the information that has been from the beginning of space-time is held on that boundary. And that's why space has to expand as more and more information is experienced, as evolution proceeds, as self-aware beings arise. And so it is the Akashic, it, it's a modern terminology for the Akashic record. And it's continued to expand. And if you will, share with people what the Akashic records are for those who have never heard that term before. Okay. We're going back now to ancient India and we're going back to um, ancient sages, Vedic sages, who wrote amazingly insightful, wise books such as the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. And what they came up with was this concept of Akasha and the concept of a record of everything that has happened um, within our universe from its beginning. And they talk of the uni our universe in very similar terms to the way Big Bang cosmology describes it. In other words, they describe it as the outbreath of Brahman. But you see, when we talk about the Big Bang, we think of an explosion mm -hmm. often, but the Big Bang wasn't big and it wasn't a bang. It was literally, if you can purse your lips and blow an out breath, it's much more akin to that because it was incredibly ordered, incredibly fine-tuned. But as space-time expanded or space expanded and time progressed through this entropic process of ever-increasing information, then more and more and more information on the holographic boundary of space-time was literally the Akashic record, the story of our universe, the story of consciousness within space-time. And the story of each one of us as we are a part of it. Exactly. We literally, and again, you know, there was a wonderful um, way of describing not only the, this, the, the Akasha, the, the outbreath of Brahman, but also how everything within space-time and the entirety of, of, of the holographic boundary is indeed holographic. The, one of the key things of a hologram is if you create a holographic projection from an initial object, every part of that hologram that is, that is able to be so pixelated, in other words, the information within it, um, has the entirety of the object within it. In other words, the macrocosm is expressed through the microcosms, as above, so below, as within, so without. The ancient wisdom 
describes exactly what emerging 21st science is showing. But the point, the, the description as it was for the ancient Vedic sages was what's called Indra's net. And what they said was, imagine a shimmering net of light without beginning or end, and each node of its weave and weft, a myriad of multifaceted jewels reflect and are each reflected by every other in rainbow-hued radiance of ever-changing illumination. Its infinite oneness manifests in the uncountable creative gems through which their eternal evolution is continually inspired and co-created. Now, those are my words, but that is the exact description 3,000 or more years ago that the ancient sages described reality. And that, as you describe it, is the microcosm of each and every one of us within the macrocosm of our collective consciousness, but in, within our universal consciousness. And it's my understanding that one of the ways that science has discovered this is at black holes. Is that correct? Where they yeah. have found the information of what's within the black hole at the top of the black hole. So tell me a bit more about that. Okay. Well, I, I love this. You know, I talked about my scenic route. Well, in, 19, in 1972, I was an undergraduate in Oxford. And have you heard of Stephen Hawking? Of course. <laughs> okay. Well, Stephen, <laughs> Stephen came to, to do a postgraduate seminar and I was invited to that, even though I was an undergrad, I was a little 19 year old, wet behind the ears. And I was invited to that by his mentor um, and my mentor, a wonderful man called Dennis Sharma. And the talk was on black holes. And um, so this was back in 72. And I was so inspired by the talk. I wrote an essay on black holes and won the university prize for undergraduates hmm. for it. So how cool is that? Wow. That is. <laughs> so all these years later, I'm writing about black hole entropy and information as part of the book. But you're absolutely right. What happened was it was realized. It, first of all, the question was, what happens when a star contracts? to become a black hole. What happens to the information? Because one of the basic tenets um, of quantum physics is, is ultimately you can't destroy information. Now, actually, there are some, there are some sort of subtleties around that that we, we won't have time to get into. But that was the question raised. And, and what it was realized was actually the information and the informational entropy of a black hole is actually held on what's called the event horizon, which is the point whereby Anything that goes beyond that, um, it can't be, again, very subtleties, but, but basically isn't released. Mm -hmm. So the, the idea grew by a number of researchers. And the one I want to refer to specifically is, is a wonderful man called Jacob Beckenstein, who died earlier this year, passed over earlier this year. And what Jacob understood was that the informational content of that original star that became the black hole is actually held on the event horizon. Now, black holes are spherical, almost always, as far as I'm aware, as far as any of us are aware at the moment, they're spherical. So think of a sphere and think of, 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 of information and you'd almost expect that all the information would be proportional to the volume, the three-dimensional volume of the sphere. Mm -hmm. yeah? Just as if you, you just look at a book, you know, the thicker the book, you figure there's more information in it. Yeah. Right. Right. The reality of it is the information, the whole information of a, a spherical black hole is actually proportional to the surface area 
of the event horizon. And what Beckenstein also realized is that when you go beyond the quantum scale, there's there's a new, well, it's not new, but there's a scale that is in so tiny compared to the quantum scale. It's almost as tiny to the quantum scale as the quantum scale is to our universe. It's called it's called the Planck scale. And give you an idea, in space terms, it's 10 to the minus 35 meters. Okay. <laughs> Very small. It's, it's pretty small. <laughs> yes. And in yes. time okay. terms, it's 10 to the minus 44 seconds. But if you think of that tiny Planck scale, it's rather like the pixelation of space and time. You know, the old the old tellies, the old TVs, if you go up to them, you can see those little dots going on. You can't anymore, but you used to, right, right. to mark when I was growing up. Um, yeah. So space-time is becoming realized as being pixelated at the Planck scale. And what Jacob understood is that each pixel holds one bit of information. Mm. So if you think of that, what you also get, you go back to what we were saying earlier about the, the, that is a holographic boundary. You know, it's a two-dimensional holographic boundary on which all the information within that black hole is held. And it's held at one bit per Planck area. Yeah. So now we just do a simple jump into the whole of our universe being considered in the same way. So from the first moment of space-time, the holographic boundary of our universe is like that black hole event horizon. But instead of being a constant area, it grows and grows and grows and grows through time because that's the only way by space expanding, by that holographic boundary expanding, that more and more information, more and more consciousness can be expressed and explored and experienced and evolved within what we call the space-time of physical reality. Whoa. Okay. So <laughs> what does this mean for our daily lives? How do we take this and, you know, in our understanding of, yeah, what does this mean for us? I'm so glad you asked that question because for me that is the key question. You know, if this is just academic, hey, you know, some of us who should get out more probably really excited by it. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, the really exciting thing is that the holographic signature, the cosmic hologram as I describe it, is being found now across all scales of reality. It's being found in biology. It's being found, you know, in all the patterns in the so-called natural world, it, we pick it up. When we look at complex systems, when we dig beneath them, you know, computers are able to analyze vast amounts of data. And what they've discovered over the past couple of decades, more and more, is every complex system, whether it's weather patterns, ecosystems, all through the natural world, from the tiny scale to the biggest scale of our universe, is underlie, is underlain by this holographic signature of information in so-called fractal patterns. You know, you look at a fern and you look deeper to fern and, and smaller to fern and smaller and smaller. That's a fractal pattern because it scales up and it scales down. 
but not just in the natural world, which is our everyday world, which is mm-hmm. nature, you know, which is when we go out into an ecosystem, that is fractal. That is underpinned by this informational, holographic uh, bedrock of reality. But even more so, there's been a lot of analysis over the last few years in terms of our behaviors, in terms of things like the internet, the incidence even of conflicts. You know, folks have been looking how conflicts uh, grow or, or how conflicts manifest themselves. And the incidence of conflicts, which have been analyzed from small um, hissy fits to world wars, show they actually obey the exactly the same what's called logarithmic holographic power laws that earthquakes do. There's not a typical earthquake. It scales up, they scale down. There's no typical conflict. They scale up, they scale down. So that I feel is transformation revolutionary because it's saying we can't separate ourselves in any way from our decisions. Think of the internet. You know, we set up a website. Um, We may put in certain links, but then other folks look at our website and off their own behavior, they decide to link to it or not. Now, you'd think that that would be a random network. Yeah? Mm -hmm. It's not. It's holographic. It's fractal. You look at the way we move through our lives, and of course, companies now can pick up our whereabouts from our mobile phone records. Whilst anonymously analyzed, mobile records have been analyzed for thousands on thousands of people, and regardless what our lifestyle choices are, do we decide to go down the coffee shop for a coffee? Do we decide to go into a library? Do we decide, you know, what do we go in when we go to work in all different commutes and things? That too is holographic and fractal. What do you mean? Explain that more. What I mean is that the same patterns that show up in earthquakes show up in the internet. The same patterns that show up in the weather show up in the internet. In other words, everything we call reality, including our conscious choices, Mm -hmm. form part of a macrocosm of consciousness exploring itself. We make our choices at the microcosmic level of our apparently free will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But when we add all of that together, our collective choices obey exactly the same patterns, the informational patterns that play out in the entirety of physical reality. So it actually impacts our everyday lives because for the first time, that spiritual, intuitive, experiential sense of interconnectedness is being shown up in ways that that are not just scientifically evidenced, but are unavoidable. It's showing we are connected at a profoundly fundamental level of reality on every scale, including whether we decide to go down to the supermarket or not. Meaning that if I decide to go to the supermarket, that one that it, it almost if I imagine like a spider a web, mm. um, that my decision to go there will then affect. Yeah. I don't this person who then calls this person who's yeah. then yeah. gets in a car accident with this person who then but but whatever. Um and so that is the web that's created. Now coming back to your when you said 
quote, apparent free will. What did you mean by that? <laughs> well, go back to that one. Let's go back <laughs> that to that one, pretty shall important. we? Shall we? <laughs> I, I, I find this, this wonderful because it, when, when um, I've been, as I said, go through the scenic route, and the scenic route has been absolutely filled with mystical experiences of, of synchronicities, of, of going beyond space and time, of realizing these interconnections at very profound levels, that only now is this emerging paradigm being able to sort of expand and encompass and, you know, within a scientific worldview. Um, but I suppose the more and more I've, I've realized I'm far more than the persona that is having this conversation the more I've realized that I am literally the universe. And I do feel that, that, you know, Einstein perceived this, the ancient sages, mystics throughout the ages have understood this, and more and more people are experiencing this oneness. It's yes, on this level, I have free will, but I am connected through the greater reality of my soul, my spirit, to everything else. Yeah. So it, it's not not it's not either or it's both. It's all. So in so meaning if we go back to the I'm just going to be really practical. So I'm going back to the supermarket. example. <laughs> your, I love metaphors. You're determined I, I just, to get to this supermarket. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So um, meaning that I think that I'm choosing to go to the supermarket, but instead, perhaps someone had said something to me. It's this like reverberation, essentially. It, it is, but it's also your own um, overlighting presence as well, you know, flowing through you. And the more that people experience, uh, you know, expand, expanded consciousness where we connect to our higher selves or we connect to these multidimensional realities, we begin to both remember and realize that there's far more to us than we think there is. You know, one of the things when we come into incarnation, we we think we're separate, you know, and we take on this persona and part of the ego mind is to persuade us of this because it's a great adventure. If, if, if our entirety of our human journey was that we fully remembered the oneness of, of the entirety of reality, we wouldn't fully explore or experience or mirror you know, we wouldn't be a fully um, exploratory microcosm of the cosmic hologram. So actually thinking we're separate mm-hmm. um, is great as long as we don't fully fall into that duality. Because when we fully fall into that perception of separation, that's when the fear comes. We think we're separate. So we've, you know, we, we can fear the other. That is the that is the dance of duality that's really taken us currently. Um, when on one hand we're on the cusp of remembering our fundamental interconnection, on the other hand, what's playing out in in Paris with the current events, but in with Daesh, with ISIL in the Middle East, and so much else, is almost as though our collective consciousness is mirroring back to us and saying, do we want to play this game of duality anymore? We've taken it to its extreme forms. So how do we respond to events? Do we respond to them in fear or do we embrace them in love? 
And mm-hmm. that's not a naive love. That is literally a remembering of, of the infinite and ultimate oneness. And it's not saying we don't deal with appalling behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, in a way, remembering that it's part of our collective psyche that is yet to be healed, that is traumatized, that perceives itself as, as dualistic. And so what can we do as a collective to help heal that within ourselves. And that does come back to the microcosm. You know, many years ago, the great teacher Lao Tzu said, you know, there cannot be peace in the nation or indeed in the world without peace in the nation, peace in the city, peace in the home, peace in the heart. So the whole point really of the cosmic hologram of consciousness, this innate interconnectivity, is that we're both microcosms and we're macrocosms. And so coming coming back to yes to what is happening right now as you described in Paris and um, and Russia and all over the world Lebanon and yeah. um, is that it is in some way it is a reflection of as you said of what has yet to be healed yeah. um, from a collective consciousness now so so when we see events such as this um, I I have noticed with myself that I know that the ego wants to control. So it starts researching, you know, yeah. everything about ISIS and the situation and trying to understand as much so that I can control so that my fear subsides, that if, if I know, you know, X, Y, and Z, then it won't happen. Um, the, the other approach is what? What is the other way of dealing with it from a microcosm level of just within ourselves? Well, I, I experience a sort of, just as we get the electromagnetic spectrum, Okay. For me, where there is fear, love is not there. Where there is love, fear subsides. There was Mm -hmm. an amazing photograph some years ago of the Indian Ocean tsunami. And it's of a mother. um, And she is farther away from the ocean and this incredibly huge tsunami coming, this incredible wave coming. But her two children are closer to it. They've got their back to it. They do not know what is coming. Mm. She looks towards it and she runs towards them. Mm-hmm. She has no fear. She does, I mean, yeah. the love is so unconditional and overwhelming. And all three of them survived, by the way. But mm. that photograph of this mother, unconditionally love for her children, just embracing that there's no fear. And I've been in war zones. I've been, I was in Bosnia in the Balkan War and I've, you know, I've been in the Middle East a lot. And what I know from my own experience is where I can find within myself love, the fear subsides. Now, that isn't to say that there isn't grief. That isn't to say that, you know, we need to do what we need to do to contain those mm-hmm. that that destruction, those horrors, those appalling, appalling actions. But if we respond through fear and through anger and through revenge, then we're just perpetuating them because there'll always be more fear and anger and revenge. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we don't deal with them, but we deal with them from that place of of perspective and understanding and the realization of interconnectivity and it's like if i had if i had a wound on my body mm-hmm. you know i'd want to heal that wound 
Now, it may be that I would have to do things. You know, there's so many things we can do. But ultimately, the one thing we can do microcosmically, each and every one of us, is resolve not to be fearful and resolve not to respond in anger or revenge. Mm. And there's a wonderful, I don't know if you've seen it, but there is a wonderful response by the husband of one of the, the ladies who were, who were killed, one of the victims of Paris. And what he was saying to the perpetrators was that he will not gift them hatred. Mm. He refuses to hate them. And he's looking because at, that's what they must want. That's that is what they want because it's rather yeah. like you know on a really extreme, distorted, dysfunctional, pathological level. But that's the extreme to which we've you know the the duality has played out. Um, that is what they want, and and that's what we cannot give them, and give us and give ourselves. We cannot hate them. And is this play into if we think of? 2012, the, the, you know, the shift um, that the evolution of consciousness, um, how, do, how does what's happening right now play into that? Is this back to the, what you were saying about uh, consciousness coming back to us saying, is this, is this the duality what you want? I think so. I mean, the elders on the run up to 2012, I spoke with a lot of indigenous elders around the world. And what they were saying is, we can take this shift, you know, we can undertake the shift of consciousness, but the choice is ours. And it does go back to the microcosmic, ego-based free will. What is our choice? And both individually and collectively, what do we choose? And, and in the aftermath of Paris, there has been such an, an outpouring of compassion. Mm. And yet... The other side of it is the political and military leaders, you know, are still pushing for bombing. Now, you can actually respond peacefully to what's happening. There are so many ways you can cut off the funding for Daesh, ISIL. There are so many ways you can stop there. You know, you, you can stop them by starving them of funds, by, by starving them of, of, of recruits. Um, you know, many ways are, are you know, not to disenfranchise Muslims, not to peripheralize or other or scapegoat. Mm -hmm. You know, the more we do that, um, or the more we bomb, you know, bombing, violence begets violence, inevitably. There are so many ways we can respond that actually will be far, far more effective and actually far more helpful to the vast numbers of innocent folks caught up in that horror that is raging in, in Syria and Iraq and elsewhere. Um, and when we act from violence and revenge and anger and hatred, that just perpetuates the, uh, the duality. Hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it makes me think of, um, you know, back that it's just so powerful that macro and micro um, and that constant shifting back and forth in our mind um, of what that looks like, and and it and it, it comes back to yeah, what am I doing today in this moment 
to act in a place of love to, you know, from within my sphere of influence. Exactly. Um, right? Yeah. Exactly. But as we were saying, you know, we are microcosms of the microcosm. It really does ripple through the, through the field. It really does ripple through that web. And the more of us who are able to be love, and that's not fluffy bunny love, that is love at its highest most profound, most compassionate, most unconditional level, where we know the duality is is illusory. We know it's a perspective, it's a perception. We have lots of fun with it. But when that fun turns to effectively self-destruction, mm-hmm. then it's no longer fun. Mm-hmm. And it seems time, and it is 2012, and it is beyond. We're in a process potentially of birthing, a new era. Um, but it is our choice. And it's our choice on microcosmic and collective macrocosmic levels. And we have so much help. I mean, one of the things perhaps to say finally is that all my life, because I've walked between worlds, I've realized and been incredibly grateful for all the spiritual help we have in, in many other realms and dimensions of awareness. And to call on those realms as well we're not alone you know we're we're at the forefront we're at the boot camp of 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 living through this and growing and learning and evolving through this but we do have an enormous amount of help but ultimately the choice is ours and how can people in listening to this as they go about their day maybe they're driving in their car or um, going for a walk um, and as they turn this off and it comes to a close in what ways can they ask for help or in what, what can they do after this or be or think um, in order to live more to their highest purpose and highest path? Well, I guess the first thing is I've never, and please, I hope others do, but I've never found it a quick fix. It's one yeah. of those things that, you know, is step by step. by. It's a dance. You know, and sometimes in a dance, there's two steps forward, one step back. We twirl, we move to the side, mm-hmm. <laughs> we fall, the, we fall over. <laughs> well, I do all the time. My husband said I can trip on a carpet, and I can. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, it's being kind to ourselves and catching ourselves when we're not, loving ourselves and catching ourselves when we're not, becoming more aware of how we think and feel and act towards ourselves and towards others in our lives. Small acts of kindness, paying kindness forward, being kind. I mean, you know, it, it's so simple. I never say it's easy, but the golden rule. Try and live the golden rule in our lives. Be, be with others as we would hope they would be with us. They're not always as we would hope they would be, but that doesn't and shouldn't stop us being as we would hope to be treated. Mm. And the more we you can know what, do that, yeah, you ahead. know, that that is really the heart and soul of transformation. Mm. I think back to one book that I reference all the time is the book Journey of Souls uh, by Michael Newton, who talks about lives between lives. And, um, and in it, he talks about your life review mm-hmm. as you go in between and, and shares that in your life review, you, you view it from the third person, not from yourself, but you experience every interaction that you ever had in your whole life from the other person's perspective. And you f- literally feel, you feel the joy that you brought them, you feel the sadness, you bring, you know, all of it. 
And I think about that all the time as I go day to day in my interactions, whether it be with the person working at the grocery store, with my yeah. child, with my, right? It's just everybody, in, everything. Yeah, and, everybody. Like, and you know, I don't know if, if he says this, but I would say that when that life review occurs, when you are with those others and perceiving it from their view, you're actually seeing your own soul mirror back to you. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because we're all one. It's one and the same. We're all one, but we're choosing to experience that perspective of knowing ourselves through knowing the other. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Jude. Oh, Susanna, you're so welcome. This has been fun. (laughs) This has been really fun and so insightful. And I need to go back and listen to it again so that I can truly absorb all of it. Um, And will you just for a moment tell everybody about where they can find out more about you and your books and um, where they can where they can find more? Oh, thank you, Susanna. Um, Well, I've got a very simple website at the moment because this last year my work's been evolving and I've been in writing mode. So they can go to www.judecurravan.com or one word, judecurravan.com. They can find my books on Amazon. Just Google my author name, uh, Jude Curravan, on Amazon. Um, And they can contact me. Uh, There's an email on the website. Um, at the moment, as I say, I've been in writing mode and hopefully uh, the Cosmic Hologram, How to Make a Perfect Universe will be out, I hope, sometime next year. Um, and I'm writing um, a, a companion book called Gaia, Her Story. Uh, I've just started that as well. So lots of writing at the moment, but I, you know, I always try and respond to anyone who wants to reach me through the website. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for coming out of writing mode for this interview. What a treat it has been for all of us. So thank you so much. Thank you, Susanna. And thanks to everyone who's listening and, and lots and lots of love to you all. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And I would love to continue the conversation with each of you over at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash cosmos in you or our Twitter page. The Twitter handle also is Cosmos in You. And of course, at our website, cosmosinyou.com. Again, thank you so much for listening in. I'm so grateful to each of you to be able to share this shared passion and look forward to seeing you next time.